So as we continue this series of talks right now, we're in a series walking through our statement of faith. That's what we're doing. And uh, much of this uh, may seem or feel like a theology lecture in many senses. And uh, to be honest with you, I love that. Because there's an element at times that we lose uh, when we simply kind of talk about the stuff that we want to hear and we don't actually root in or ground into the foundations of why do we believe what we believe. And those are the questions that uh, most people are asking. Even I, I would, uh, I would bet that most of you even now are asking some of those same questions. Well, why is that? Why? Why do we believe what we believe? And if you have never asked those questions, I would challenge you throughout this uh, series, throughout what we're talking about, to do that, just that. Ask, ask those questions. Why is it that uh, we believe these things, or we say these things, or we sing about these things, or we talk about these things? Because uh, if we don't ask those questions, we end up being some organization that gathers once a week and does things for a reason that nobody else knows why. Okay, And I do not want us to be that. And I surely don't want to be part of that where we can't ground ourselves and root ourselves and grow ourselves unless you and I are convinced that we in and of ourselves are already like the person of Jesus. Um, we have some work to do. All right? And uh, <laughs> today specifically, we're going to, really the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the person of Jesus. And this is at the foundation of what we believe, at the very core of what we call the gospel. And the gospel means what? Good news. Everyone say good news. Okay, that's important. And uh, specifically this week, we're going to be talking about the person of Jesus. Next week, we're going to be talking about the work of Jesus. And uh, that in, in and of itself says a lot, the fact that we could do two separate messages su- seeking to summarize the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, which if I'm honest with you, I could probably do a whole long series on just the person of Jesus, okay? And uh, when I was thinking about this, I thought of one of my favorite story illustrations that I heard years ago, and you will probably hear me reference it multiple times because I love it so much, and it's a story... Uh, that took place within a children's ministry context, all right? That's one of my reasons it's one of my favorite stories, is some of the best illustrations of stories seem to come out of doing children's ministry. And this teacher is teaching a Bible lesson, and she's using an illustration, so she asks the kids, she goes, what is brown and has a bushy tail and eats nuts? And this young child who's sitting and intently listening to the Sunday school teacher's lesson raises his hand ever so slightly. The teacher calls him and he says, Teacher, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a squirrel. (laughs) And the reality of that illustration... There's many applications to that, but oftentimes, if you step into a church setting or even interact with someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, Jesus ends up being the answer for a lot of questions. And yet, at the core of that, 
we have to ask, do we know why? Do we have an understanding as to why Jesus is such a focal point in what we believe? How much do we actually know about Jesus and does it matter? Now we're going to be asking one question consistently today. You're going to hear it multiple times. And it is simply the que- this question. It's going to show up right here. Why does it matter? And so we're going to see how, much, how, how well you guys pay attention or how well I can keep you guys awake. And every time you see this pop up on here, I want you to verbally say it because I want us to get in the habit of asking that question. Okay? So, black it out again, and we're going to test this. Okay? All right, go ahead. Oh, I love that sound. Everyone said it at the same time. It's so good. Okay. The reason I want us to get used to asking this question is because when we come to what we believe, we can answer questions, oftentimes rooted in what we were taught, maybe even in Sunday school growing up, and we were given answers. But let me just tell you, church, answers are not enough. And what I mean by that is if you can't walk someone to a point where they can understand themselves why that is the answer, then your answer is Void of any depth. And much of the time we end up in a place where we can state the answer, but we cannot answer this question. Thank you. Yes. I like it. We're going to try it one more time. Okay. One, two, three. Perfect. Okay. So the statement specifically that we're going to work off of today from our, from our statement of faith is this, and it's going to show up here for you. It says, we believe, and I'll again reference and emphasize that when we say we believe, this is us saying we believe this is what God's word says. We understand God to be saying this specifically in his revealed word to us. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. There's a lot in that, okay? And we're going to seek to summarize it, so we'll be here till 1 o'clock. Just kidding, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to break this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this statement up into three parts. And we're going to look specifically at three parts of this statement and understand biblically where does this come from and ultimately, one, two, three. Awesome. Part one of this, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter two. That's where we're going to start. Philippians chapter two, we're going to look specifically at verse one. And as you're turning there, just to bring us up to speed, Philippians was a book written to the church at Philippi by a man named Paul, who used to be Saul. And if you want to know the story of how Saul became Paul, you can read Acts chapter 9 sometime. And it details where he was uh, what we would know as a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders of the time, and he 
was so opposed to anyone who sought to follow after Jesus that he would go around persecuting and actually killing Christians because he so disagreed with them. And God appeared to him in person and his life was transformed and changed and we see his ministry really throughout the New Testament as he wrote letters to churches encouraging them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 2, starting uh, realistically at verse 1 of chapter 2, we see him set the precedent for what Christ's example is. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 1, where it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul has this in mind, that the church would be one. Everyone say one. But he doesn't stop here. In verse 5, he goes on to give a very specific example Where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Yes. And in the midst of this, you see just in one passage... That it identifies Jesus being in the form of God and at the same time humbling himself and being in the form of man. Now church, when we come to this doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man, this is where true Christianity makes a separation from most other foundations of belief across the world. There are many, 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 many people beyond Christians that believe Jesus lived, that he existed. But who they believed him to be is where that shifts and changes drastically. And we see this throughout history as an issue that many people wrestle with. And understandably so. Because at the core of this, we are saying, in essence, Jesus, one person, being in and of himself fully God and fully man. And in the midst of that, one of the terms that some of you may have heard before to reference what that looks like is something that's called hypostatic union. Has anyone heard that term before? Oh, very few of you. See, this is why I love this. Okay? Here's the definition of hypostatic union. And you can throw this term around and make make it sound like you're really, really smart. Don't do that, though. You confuse people. This is what that means. The second person, the reincarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains forever undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. 
That's the definition of hypostatic union. A theological term that most people never hear unless they go to Bible college, sadly. Now, in regards to history, I'm, I'm going to give you just a brief example of where this was controversial. Uh, one of the main controversies around the person of Jesus was uh, in a time of a guy named Arian and the Arian heresy. Has anyone heard of that before? Anyone heard of that? Okay. Good. This is great. So how about Constantine? How many of you have heard of Constantine before? Okay, good. All right, I'm going to bring you up to speed. So Constantine was emperor of Rome. And when he became emperor of Rome, he sought out to make one unified nation really complete, really whole. And he decided, man, this Christian faith seems to have a lot of power behind it. And so I'm going to work that to my advantage. I'm going to seek to unite all these people together behind this Christian faith. Now, don't get this mistaken. Constantine never recordedly came to faith in Christ himself. He was very for Christianity, but for his own purposes. And many of your history books would describe him as a pagan in nature who sought to use the advantage of the Christian faith to further his empire and further himself. In fact, later when he died, he actually uh, accepted some very heretical, anti-biblical teachings because that seemed to be what appeased him most at the time. During this time, in the 4th century, there was a man named Arius who was a, was a preacher. And at this time, within the Christian church, they had bishops who would oversee the runnings of the church. And Arius came, the main bishop was this guy named Alexander of Alexandria. Okay, Alexander was very prominent bishop in the church, and Arius was this guy who was not yet a bishop, but he decided to oppose what was being taught. And he brought this theology of thought that said, Jesus was not a deity, he was not fully God, he was man. He was human in nature, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't elevate him to the point of God, because only God should be in that role. And so this was the Arian heresy. And it brought about what we refer to now as the first council at Nicaea. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay, a few more of you. And the council at Nicaea was brought together by Emperor Constantine himself for the purpose of getting rid of this debate. So if you can imagine 318 bishops getting together over approximately a two-month period of time simply to argue about theology... I wouldn't want to be a part of that. And in fact, at one point in this story, it's honestly one of my favorite parts of the story because I'm imagining this happen. The people representing Arius' point of view get up and start to read the manuscript directly. And it was so blatantly heresy that the other bishops in the room all started plugging their ears and yelling for it to stop. At which point, one of the bishops came up, grabbed the manuscript out of the hands, threw it on the ground, started to stomp on it, and a riot ensued. Okay? This is all happening amongst a group of pastors. And we wonder why the church can be such a messy place. What in turn happened was they came up with the Nicene Creed, which in some sectors of Christianity has become a popular uh, authoritative perspective on these very doctrines, but it influenced broader church culture and brought us to a place 
where we are today even, bits and pieces of that, and it's still debated today. In fact, interestingly enough, if you were to read the theology of Jehovah's Witnesses in regards to Jesus, it almost word-for-word copies the Arian heresy. It's almost exactly the same. And so I want you to understand the importance of some of those historical elements when it impacts and comes into this reality that this still carries over into what we know today and how we converse with people and what that looks like. But the broader question still remains... Why does it really matter that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Why does it really matter that we see him as one person in both natures? What's the significance of that? The ability, get this church, the ability to defeat sin and death depends on the fullness of God's power. The sufficiency of the sacrificial substitute depended on one of like nature without blemish. In other terms, if Jesus was not fully God, he could not have the strength in and of his humanness to bear the weight of our sin and have power over death. If we remove Jesus' deity, that he is indeed God, from him, then we at the same time remove his ability to do anything in regards to our sin nature. Colossians 1, I'm just going to read this for you. Colossians 1 emphasizes this in verse 15 where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness, the fullness of God's glory dwelled within Christ. The fullness of that. But not only that, if Jesus was not fully man, he would not have been able to be a right sacrifice on our behalf. Now Hebrews chapter 2 is going to be up here and it simply says this, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now the application of that church is this reality that if we desire salvation, true salvation, then it depends on God revealing Himself in the very sacrifice that it took for our sins to be taken. It depends on both. It matters because you remove one of those elements and all of a sudden the ball goes back into your court And you have to figure out how you're going to be saved. You have to figure out how to add that missing element. 
it matters a great deal. Part two of this says that Jesus is the Messiah, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And for all of you people who can't wait, guess what? Christmas came early. We're going to read out of Luke chapter 1. And this is most commonly known and often referenced and read as a Christmas narrative. But I want to encourage you, don't limit it to just Christmas because there's application here. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now this is honestly, church, one of those theological doctrines that if you go and just talk to a random person on the street and you were to bring this up, they're going to look at you like, huh? What are you talking about? It doesn't even make any sense. Which is important. Why it's important for us to ask the question... Why does it matter? Okay? Why does it matter at all? And honestly, if this doesn't matter to us personally, then why do we spend any time talking about it? Why is it within the stories we teach our children? And there's a big reason that this should matter. But I often think we miss the connection. One of the first reasons that this should matter to us is in the fulfillment of prophecies that we see way, way before the coming of Jesus. Now, the first one of those, whether you knew it or not, is actually in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis 3. I'm going to have to put that up here. And this is right after the first sin happened. We talked about that last week. And I'm going to give you another big term that you could throw around that's a lot of fun. And this verse is known as the Proto-Evangelium. Anyone want to guess what that means? Proto means what? Anyone know? First. means like It means first. 
And evangelium means gospel. The first gospel, the first promise of good news after sin. This is the proto-evangelium. It's Genesis 3.15, where God is speaking specifically to the serpent that had deceived the woman and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, isn't that interesting? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first instance where God already had a plan. Way back in Genesis. Now, in a similar way, in Isaiah, we see something happen again that's even more specific. Go ahead and go to that next slide. Isaiah chapter 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is in Isaiah. This is some 700 years before Jesus was born. You want to get even crazier, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Again, way before the time of Jesus. Now, if you're still in Luke, flip over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at Jesus himself, what he has to say about this. Luke chapter 24, specifically in verse 44. Jesus says this, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus identifies these have to be fulfilled. But it doesn't just stop there. When, I, when I, you consider why the virgin birth is necessary, we have to understand it in light of sin and total depravity that we talked about last week. That is the understanding biblically that no matter who we are, if we're born of man, from the seed of men, we are born into sin. So how is it That Jesus could be completely sinless and an able sacrifice on our behalf. He had to be born of the Spirit. He had to be born separately from the rest of mankind because we recognize that all the way back in Genesis, this curse of mankind would have inherently gone to Him if He had simply been the son of Joseph. 
that would have carried over. And Jesus would not have been the pure sacrifice needed to atone for the sins of mankind. Romans chapter 5 speaks of this specifically where it says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Praise God for that. It didn't stay that way. But it was necessary that Mary give, give birth not from her husband, her, her betrothed husband, but from the Holy Spirit directly. Does that make sense? You guys understand that? You grasp that? The, the depth of this goes so far beyond just, wow, this is a miracle of God. It carries over into our entire theological understanding of how sin is dealt with as a whole. It matters a great deal. Part three of this, Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified, rose bodily from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at God's right hand. Now, these are all things that you have heard before or stated before, we've talked about before, but the question we need to ask is, oh, we could do better than that. The question we need to ask is, There we go. Turn with me to Hebrews. And this is where we're going to be for the last little bit of our time here. Starting in Hebrews 1, I'm going to take you to a couple passages. We're asking, why does it matter that Jesus lived a sinless life? Why does it matter that He was crucified? Why does it matter that He rose bodily from the dead? Why does it matter... How do I share, talk about these things in a way that's understood? Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. Get that. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, flip to Hebrews 4. I'm going to take you through several of these. Hebrews 4, specifically verse 14. It says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, just briefly there, this is describing the reason that Jesus can function as a priest, standing in the gap, interceding for God's, for people here to God specifically. Standing in the gap because just as he was, the priests who were called by God were qualified, but died and had to even atone for their own sins in the midst of this, Jesus became an eternal high priest, which we're going to see again in chapter 7. Flip the page or go to chapter 7, specifically verse 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins and then for those people. Since he did this once for all, he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Praise God for that. And the last place I want to take you is in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. If you haven't grasped, a lot of the book of Hebrews is just describing the power of Jesus. Verse 13 in chapter 9 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the sacrifice of Christ atone for that? Understanding it matters that Jesus lived a sinless life because if he had sinned, then he's no different than you and I. And you and I have no power to defeat sin. It matters that he was crucified because Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. It matters that he was bodily raised. And as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, not even Jesus raised from the dead, then our faith, everything we believe is in vain. There's no life. There's no hope. 
If we're believing, if we're having faith in a dead man, then there's no, there's no life, there's no hope, there's no power over death, over darkness, because he was defeated the same as you and I would be apart from Jesus. So ultimately, church, why does it matter? Why does it matter? I want you to understand this main idea. Who Jesus is determines the foundation of our faith and our future. Who Jesus is is at the core of everything else we believe. If we miss this, if we lose sight of this, then we can scrap everything else. And if we haven't answered the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? Then we're missing a core element of the very faith we, we may claim to hold to. We're missing this. And so I have one application question for you this morning. As you think about how this applies to your own life, does it matter to us? Does it matter to you and me? Does it matter to us that if Jesus is who He says He is, those who don't trust in in the name of Jesus to be saved are going to hell? Does it matter to us? Does it matter to us that if Jesus is who He says He is, that we can't just take the words we like, but all of what He said? Does it matter? And maybe we look at this and we go, well, I thought it mattered, but I I didn't realize all of this. That's okay. But it shouldn't stop us from searching. It shouldn't stop us from longing and yearning to truly understand who is this person, Jesus, who we sing about, who we say that there is, He's the only way to salvation. Who, who is He? Why does it matter? And if you know, if you know, and you say, I believe this, then we should step back and evaluate our life and go, does it, does it matter? Would the people outside of this building, would they say that it matters to me? Would they say that I care what Jesus taught? It's a hard question to ask. As we consider that, we're going to sing one song before communion. And as we do so, I'm going to encourage you to stand with me and we're going to sing this out and then we're just going to reflect upon these truths. We're going to take communion together before we close today. And we're going to trust God with this. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take seriously this question. Does it matter? Does it truly matter to us? And even now as we sing and recognize that you are stronger, Lord, that we would identify the areas where we are not living like we care what Jesus said or that there is salvation through Christ. Father, bring those to mind, bring those to light and help us to understand that 1 John 1 promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we do that this morning. We commit this to you in Jesus' name.